Think for a moment. What is it that provides peace to your mind? What is it that provides peace to your mind and to your heart in in the midst of, uh, of turmoil, in the midst of struggles? Have you ever been in a situation, in a circumstance that feels beyond your control? Anyone? Yeah. Well, if you haven't, you haven't lived yet. Um, have you ever been in a situation that feels deeply unsettling? Have you ever found yourself in a place depressed? You ever found yourself in darkness? For a lot of us as Christ followers, we have a hard time admitting the fact that the darknesses of circumstances can overtake us and at times even engulf us. For a lot of us, we feel as though our our Christian faith is somehow um, mocked by our own depression, that, that somehow it shows or reveals that when we struggle, when we're hurting, when we're down, when we're crushed by the darkness of life, that somehow that testifies to a lack of faith in God or or to a weakness in the hand of God. But as I look at Scripture, it, it, it seems apparent to me that it's not unusual that we see people, those who were followers of God, those that God used mightily, arriving in that same place, in that same state. Every time I think about this, I, I can't help but starting with my thoughts of Elijah. You know the story of Elijah? Who, who had probably the most spectacular victory in all of Scripture take place. I mean, this is a guy who goes up against, goes up against the prophets of Baal and he, and he challenges them to, to, a, to, a, to basically a sacrifice off. And he says, Let's, we're going to build, we're gonna build um, um, altars and whoever's God answers from heaven with fire. Now, how many of you guys are going into that? Like, listen, whoever God's answered with fire, and, and if I'm wrong, you guys get to kill me. And he, he, he challenges them in this way, and, and, and they, they fail, and then he sets up this, this, this altar, and, and, and not, only is he like, not only is he like confidently stepping in and saying, fire is going to come from heaven when I pray. He takes it and he douses it with water to be like, God is really big, and God is really here, and God is really alive. And he just gives a simple prayer. Fire comes from heaven, licks the whole thing up. All the prophets of Baal get killed. And you like go like a chapter later, and he's sitting in this state of depression where he's saying, God, I'm the only one. Just kill me and take me home. That's Elijah. I, I mean, I can walk through Scripture, and I see people, who, people like, like Job who... Who, who is so faithful to God that God said, consider my servant Job in whom I find no fault. How many of you think you're going to get that credential from God? Like on your resume, God writes, no fault. But after going through everything he went through, he was in depression. He desired to just die. He's trying to figure out what's wrong with me, what's taking place. 
Or David, who we're in the middle of studying, a man after God's own heart. We discover him writing in, in, in Psalms after losing all that was precious to him. He writes, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. He pens it another psalm. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Even when I reflect on the life of, of Jesus, right? What about him in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he's facing the cross, he says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Characters in the Bible find themselves in moments of, of desolation, much like many of us do. It happens. And today's story reflects on the depression experienced by an important character in the Old Testament, an important character in the history of Israel, a man by the name of King Saul. Now the series we are in is entitled Shepherd, Soldier, King, a study of David's life and song. And in this series, what we're doing is we're reflecting on the Psalms that David wrote and the experience of his life that produced those psalms, that produced those songs. Last week, if you remember, uh, we just left David. He'd been anointed king, right? Uh, Samuel, had been, Samuel had been sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel. And he was sent specifically to the house of Jesse. And if you remember, remember Samuel saw the, the sons, of, sons of Jesse, and the first one he saw it, he's like, that guy's got to be the king. And and he's like, no, that's not the king. And he said to the next guy, that's got to be the king. No, that's not the king. And he kind of worked his way all the way down through, through seven brothers of David until he got to the final one, which was David. And he was out in the, he was out in the field uh, tending the, the flock, which just lets you know how unimportant they considered him. And so he brings him in, and he, he anoints him king. He anoints him king, and you know what happens after that? He goes back to the field. Can you imagine that? Like, you've just been, Samuel, the prophet of God, travels all the way to find you. God, like, chooses you out. He pours oil over you to anoint you king. And where do you go from there? Back to the sheep. He goes back into the, he goes back into the field. He sings his songs to his woolly congregation. And that's where he's at. That's what his life is at this point. So this is, where we left, this is where we left David after he was anointed king. And the reason why he went back to the field is because at the time he was anointed king, there was a king. And that king had gotten into a place where he'd allowed arrogance to create distance between him and God. If you remember the opening of the story from last, last week, um, God, says, God says to uh, Samuel, how long will you grieve Saul? Because I have rejected him as king. So this is the reason why he comes to anoint David is because Saul is already king, but Saul and his arrogance has separated himself from God and there's been distance between him. And God said, listen, I've rejected him. He, he's turned his back on me. I've rejected him as king and so I want you to, to anoint David, but Saul is already there on the throne. And as a result of the distance between Saul and God, Saul finds himself in a very, very dark place. 
Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. I want us to stop right there before we go further in the story. Because what we see here, first of all, this is, this is directly the opposite of what we see in the last description of David, isn't it? You guys remember the very last declaration about David. After David is anointed king, they describe his state in verse 13. David is anointed. We see this description. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So we're seeing here a contrast, right? The Spirit of God has been withdrawn from Saul, but the Spirit of God has fallen on David. Here we see the anointing of God for the king. So Saul now is at this place where, he, where the Spirit of God is not upon him. And this puts, Paul, uh, puts Saul in this struggling place. He's turned his back on God, and so God left Saul to his own devices, and, sli- and, and quickly he slips into the state of depression, the state of emotional and spiritual torment is the implication here. The passage we just read, I think, is a difficult one because of the term used here. It says, a harmful spirit from God. And in that, it seems to indicate that, that God has a bad spirit in addition to the Holy Spirit, but that's not what the original language is trying to, trying to imply or trying to express. It's expressing that there, is, there was a spiritual uh, dimension to, to Saul's torment, to his, his depression. That he was being tormented by an evil spirit, that it wasn't just simply a a depression that came upon him, but it was also a a tormenting of spirit. And the truth of the matter is, this is something that we we ourselves can find ourselves in. That that our depression has a spiritual nature to it, and it's important for us to, to realize that prayer is important to breaking through. But what's interesting about this is that it's this idea that it is, a, it is a, a commingled thing taking place in the heart of Saul. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, describes it like this. He says, His malady appears to have been of a mixed kind, natural and diabolical. There's too much of apparent nature in it to permit us, there's too much of apparent nature in it to permit us to believe it was all spiritual. And there's too much of apparently spiritual, supernatural influence to suffer us to believe that it was all natural. As you read this, what we understand is that Saul is in this place where there was a natural and spiritual depression that God permitted in Saul's life because he had turned his back on God and was struggling. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the liar And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for your man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son, who is with the sheep. 
And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and young goat and sent them by David with his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now David is called upon to bring peace and calm to the troubled heart of Saul. This is an interesting challenge, isn't it? It's an interesting challenge for anyone. You come before the king and you know that he's tormented in the spirit. You know that he's tormented in his mind. You know that there's a darkness there. And the charge to you is come and push away the darkness. Come and push away the depression. Come and do something in, in, in the way in which you sing, in the way in which you play to bring peace to his spirit, to bring peace to his soul. This is the challenge that was laid out before David. And so, by bringing psalms, by bringing songs lifted before God, speaking truth about God, he would, bring, he would sing peace into the heart and the life of Saul. Now, the, the psalm that Ernie read in the midst of worship was likely a psalm that David sang to Saul in this occurrence. And the truth that is spoken in this psalm is a truth that provides a pathway to the peace of God dwelling in our hearts. So remember what's taking place here. Remember, remember what we're discussing here. Saul is tormented in his spirit. Saul is in depression. Saul is in darkness. Saul is overcome. In the same way many of us can find ourselves, right? And so he's called upon to bring the word, to bring a song, to bring peace to Saul. And so when you see the songs that he sings, we get an indication of the pathway that David is laying out to peace. What he sings, what he says, brings peace to Saul's soul. And so I want you to, to hear the truth that is spoken in these psalms. Because they can lead us to a heart and a mind of peace ourselves. I want us to understand, we can all find ourselves in times of darkness. We can all find ourselves at times where the darkness overtakes us and we slip into depression. There is no shame in that. As I said, you can walk through the scriptures, you can see people who are amazing in their faith find themselves at times in darkness. Every one of us has had that moment in time. I know throughout my entire walk, throughout my entire life, because of the circumstances I'd find myself in, there were times where I would, where I would just be crushed in spirit. It was difficult for me to interact for, with people or, or, even have, or even have conversations with my wife whom I love and my kids. Because it seemed like everything was just crushing in around me. 
whether it was whether it was the result of, of what took place in ministry or whether it was the result of what took place in, in my life. We find ourselves there sometimes. But the truth with which David approaches the troubled mind of Saul in Psalms 19 is so important to those moments. There is a framework here that if we accept it in our, in our darkest moments, if we truly embrace in the midst of our struggle, we have a pathway to refuge. But what I want you to understand as I say this is we cannot approach this in a casual way. We cannot approach this with our casual Christianity. How many of you guys know what I mean by that? The, the reality is many of us Christians, many of us Christians particularly, specifically here in, in the United States, are very casual about our Christian faith. It's, it, 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 is, it is the thing we do, it is the times we invest. We, we really don't put a lot into it. We really don't invest a great deal into it. We, 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 we pat ourselves on the back because we got up early enough to get to church on Sunday morning for the 9 a.m. service. We think that was really good. We think we did a great job in that. And like last week, like three out of seven days, I actually took like 12 minutes to read the Bible. We did really well that week. And I say this, and, and I say it, it almost sounds funny, but, but the truth is that really is the way most of us Christians live. It is a feather in our cap if seven straight days we took 15 to 20 minutes to read the Bible and pray. But when I press into the Word of God, when I see the life that these, that these men and women of God live, it goes so far beyond that. It is so fully encompassing. And so when I talk about this, when we, when we, when we press into this idea that there is a pathway out of darkness into peace, into joy, Beyond the struggles of our lives, I want you to understand what I'm talking about is us making a commitment to that pathway. Again, I want to remind you, David is trying to speak soothing to a troubled soul. So he brings a pathway to peace that revolves around truth that is discovered in God himself. A pathway that we can follow. When I, read, when I read this psalm, when I read Psalms 19, and I think about it as he's, as, he, as he's praying it, as he's singing it over the troubled soul of Saul, the very first thing I see as reality, as truth, as the first declaration is, you must immerse yourself in the majesty of God. You must immerse yourself in the majesty of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth and their words at the, uh, to the end of the world. In them he has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. 
Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. What is the opening declaration of David in this? He says, I want you to see the majesty of God. I want you to see how powerful He is. I want to immerse you in the majesty of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The first step to a return of joy is being reminded of who God is, how God reigns. It requires you getting your eyes off the finite struggles of this world and onto the transcendent nature of a creator of the universe. So often what happens is we are, we are gripped by the turmoil of this world. Whether it's the loss of a relationship or the pain of physical struggle or the unfulfillment of a desire, And in it, we lose the sight of the majesty of our Creator, of our Savior, of our God. David, in this passage, literally says, lift your eyes above the earth and its earthbound struggle and look to the heavens that declare the majesty and the glory of God. Do you see the worm-like nature that he's calling us from? We we get ourselves buried into the dirt of this world, into the things of this world. And as it overcomes us, as it overtakes us, we find darkness taking hold of our hearts and our spirits and our souls, and it's because we are not looking to the majesty of God. To say, what is this in comparison to him? What are these struggles in comparison to Him? How can I find myself so overcome by this when I know of a transcendent God who knows me and loves me and is engaged with me? This is really why I've discovered over the years worship is a great first step. I remember... Early on in, in our church's history, in like early, 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 early in, I think at that point we were a church of about 15 people. And I had, we had worked really hard, like it had been years and years. It, it's, it's a long story, but, but instead of planning a church in six months to a year, it was three years. And it was hard work, and it was hard, it was hard plowing for a while. The point where the guy who was my who was basically my my church planting coach would, would call me up and he's like, "Are you sure you're supposed to plant in Milwaukee? Because it seems like every time you try to do something, it just you hit a brick wall for three years." In the midst of that conversation I had with him, he specifically said, "He said, Tommy, um, we need to pray about this. We should we should fast and pray about this together and for two days, and then come back and talk and see what we think and." And we did that, and I didn't have an answer. And after two days, he came back, and he said, Tommy, he said, I believe God has an answer for you. And he said, the answer is, you're gonna, it's going to be hard plowing. But at just the right time, God's going to break in front of you. So for nearly three years, for nearly three years, we struggled. And finally, we just began to see God opening doors. We began to see God making a way. And for those of you who were, who were part of um, 
the Hyde House, the Hyde House opened up for us. And we just, God, just like started opening these things up and we were ready to launch. And we had everything all lined up. And we were ready to take off and we were going to send things out. And, um, and we had sent out invitations to people and we were ready for our, for our launch Sunday. And um, just as we were about to launch, just three days before we were about to launch, the inspector comes in. The building inspector comes in and says, yeah, you guys can't occupy this building. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, I was so angry at God, I can't even tell you. Like, all of this that we've done, I can't even, what, like, like, everything that we've been trying was just falling out in front of us, and I was so angry at God, and I was so mad, and I was so depressed, and I was so down. And, uh, uh, I called my, the, a guy who was kind of my, my pastoral mentor, a guy by the name of Ron Auk. Ron Auk actually just passed away this last year. And Ron Auk was this man of prayer. He's a pastor of a church, uh, and he had started a ministry, a ministry entitled Pray Tell, in which he would go and he would teach people about praying. And he started a church down in Kenosha, and the name of the church is, is Prayer House Church. So he was a man that was all about prayer, right? And so I remember calling him, and I'm depressed, and I'm down, and I'm, I mean, I'm ready to just... I mean, I can remember calling my brother just angry and in tears and yelling at him on the phone. I was just mad and I was just everything. And so I called Ron. And, and what I figured is Ron was going to say to me is Ron was going to say, uh, you know, pray tell ministries, prayer house church, this thing is prayer. What do you think I think he's going to say? You should go pray. So I kind of like, I was kind of like bugged about the call because I knew I was going to call him and ask him. I knew exactly what he was going to tell me to do and I didn't really want to pray, but I knew I needed to hear him tell me that I should pray. So I pick up the phone, I call him to say, Ron, what should I do? And he says, Tommy, put on a worship CD and go worship. And I'm like, well, that was weird. So that's what I did. So I put on a worship CD and I went into what was supposed to be our sanctuary and I began to worship God. And as I worship God, after two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, the majesty of God began to fill that place. I began to see who he was. I began to lift my eyes above who he was. And all of a sudden, it just began to wash away because I realized who is an inspector before God? Who, who is that before God? He has this. He understands it. And I'm going to trust in him that he's going to move things in a way in which it's going to work out just fine exactly the way he wants to because he is majestic above all else. And he did. And it worked out. The, the, the pathway back, the starting pathway back from a place of darkness is lifting our eyes above the circumstances of our life and focusing on, immersing ourselves in the majesty of God. The second truth, the, the, the second understanding is we have to treasure the truth of God. We have, to, we have to immerse ourselves in the majesty of God and we have to treasure the truth of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even, more, much more fine, even, even much fine gold. 
sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. When we find ourselves down and defeated as followers of God, we need to immerse ourselves in the majesty of God and we need to treasure the truth of God. David reiterates in his song, in his psalm, as he attempts to bring peace through through truth, that what God says must be treasured. That his wisdom must be valued. That following in the precepts of his teachings will bring forth an answer. It will wash away the darkness. It's more precious than gold. It is sweeter than honey. At the core of many believers' struggles is the way in which we don't treasure the truth of God, but we abandon the truth of God for the wisdom of man. I mean, I cannot tell you how common this is in the church. I can't tell you how many times I find myself dealing with people in the church and and they're just struggling, and they're, they're hurting, and they're, they're, they're in depression, and they're in darkness. And you begin to talk to them about how they got into the place that they were at. And you realize what they've been doing is ignoring the precepts of God, ignoring how, what God says, ignoring how he leads, ignoring what he's spoken to us, and doing their own thing. They find themselves in darkness, and then you know what they do? They say, God isn't faithful to me. Where's God? Why isn't God making this better? Why did God put me in this situation? And you're like, how many people are, are, are Christians who are, who are hurting and who are struggling and, and who are wondering about their own faith and the reality is they've never exercised a faith that, that is in accordance with the words of God, with the truth of God. You know, often you run into people who are down and depressed, Christians who are struggling in depression and darkness because their marriage is struggling. And and they slip into a place of depression, blaming God. But as you talk to them, all the while they've ignored God's teaching on sexual fidelity, ignored God's, God's precepts on marriage. They've embraced the, the world's ideas about how to interact between men and women. They, they, they've lived in ways that are far beyond what the Word of God says. Their marriage struggles and they blame God because marriage doesn't work. Biblical marriage hasn't failed us. We have failed biblical marriage by ignoring God's precepts. And it's not just in that. We don't like to submit to, to, to uh, we don't like to submit the way he teaches us to submit. We don't want to live in community like he calls us to live in community. We don't want to, we don't want to forgive the way he instructs us to forgive. When, when everything falls apart, we reject God, question God, and live in defeat instead of victory because we have not valued, we have not treasured the precepts of God. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And I want you to hear this. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, 
there is great reward. We need to treasure the truth of God. We need to follow His precepts. We need to reject the wisdom of the world. And when we position ourselves in that place, we're always going to be headed towards hope. We'll always be blessed in that. Listen, if you find yourself even now in a place of darkness and depression, start by lifting your eyes above circumstances to see the majesty of God and how He reigns over all. And then reflect on the life that you've chosen to live, the life that you put yourself in. Repent of ignoring His precepts. Repent of ignoring His teaching and start doing it. Because his promise here is, you will be blessed by it. Finally, the third thing is to turn to God to find freedom. As we walk through this, we see immerse yourself in the majesty of God, treasure the truth of God, and turn to find and turn to God to find his freedom. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see, the call of God to the precepts of God are enabled by God. David acknowledges our humanity. He acknowledges our brokenness. He says, who can discern his errors? He's saying, which of us can, can, see, can see very clearly the mistakes we made and, and the sin we, 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 we engage in? But he's saying, you can make me whole. You can make me pure. He's saying, there is this pathway you asked me to walk, to follow, to treasure, but in my own power, I can't stay on that path. David, in a very real sense here, in this declaration, pre previews the promise of Christ's redemptive work aside from our, our righteousness, our own ability to make ourselves right. See, God answered David's plea empowering us to live in the fulfillment of this prayer. Keep your servant from sin. Don't let it have dominion over him. I will be blameless and innocent of transgression. What is that declaration? What is that prayer? What does that ask sound like? Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. David's prayer, David's, David's declaration, David's ask of God was make me pure and blameless before you. Who can, who can know his error? Who can make it right? We are so broken. We are so in our sin. God, I want to be right before you. You make me right. You make me holy. You make me pure. And God fulfilled that prayer in Jesus Christ. We need to live in the truth of the freedom Christ has established for you.
He made you holy and blameless. If you've given your heart to Christ, He has made you by His work holy and blameless before God. I want you to hear that. One of the reasons why so many of us live in darkness and live in depression is because we've been made so aware of our darkness and our sin. And so we allow ourselves to be overcome by that. Here's the truth is, we have been made holy and blameless by the work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you, you, you can continue to sin. It doesn't mean that you're allowed to just keep sinning. It means you are free and empowered by the Spirit to respond to Christ's redeeming work, to live in accordance with the treasured precepts of the law. This is how He empowers you. You look at it and you say, God, you are right, you are holy, and I am not. I need you. The Spirit of God comes upon you, and because you know of the work of Christ, you respond to the work of Christ by striving, by desiring to live in accordance with His precepts. But sometimes we fail, don't we? And as a result, of it, we can become defeated by the weight of our sin. We, we wrestle with our sin, and at each failure, Satan will use it to create distance between you and God, which pushes you into the darkness. Revelation refers to Satan as the accuser of the saints, as the, the, as the accuser of the brethren. And, and to me, that is just, that is just a, it's such a key description that should allow us to understand what Satan wants to do in the life of a Christian. See, he wants to separate you from God. And so when you screw up, what he wants to do is he wants to put that into your heart and your mind, I'm not good enough. So many of us as Christians, when we, make, when we sin, when we screw up, we, want, we do like what Adam and Eve did. We run from the face of God. We run from relationship with God. But the beauty of what God did in answering the prayer of David was he made a pathway for us to run to God. He made a way for us to go to him and be cleansed by him. For many of us, we become defeated by the weight of our sin. We wrestle with our sin, and in our failure, Satan accuses us, and we slip deeper and deeper into darkness. But this is why Romans 8 declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. David's declaration was, I'm weakened by the flesh. How can I know? God, make me right. And he came along with his, with his own descendant and provided the way for us to be blameless before him. So often, believers are defeated and destroyed, continuing to live in darkness when God, God calls us to freedom and repentance because of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you are struggling in darkness because of the internal torment of the accusations of sin, be set free by turning to God in humility, receiving the grace of God in gratitude. His mercies are new every morning. And then go forth, treasuring the precepts, the wisdom, the law of God, and live in victory. When darkness 
descends on the mind and the spirit of the believer, the psalmist charts a course to victory. Immerse yourself in the majesty of God. Treasure the truth of God. And turn to God to find freedom from the guilt of sin. This pathway is not walked by a casual Christian. This pathway is not walked by someone who sees their Christianity as an aside to their life. It's a pathway to freedom and to light that is available to every Christian who commits everything to the truth of God. There has to be a commitment in our hearts. The truth of that, I think, is revealed in David's final stanza. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He describes here a, a heart, a commitment that says, I want everything I meditate on to glorify you. I want every word that comes out of my mouth to glorify you because you are my rock. You are beyond my problems. You are my hope and my life. That's not casual Christianity. That's a commitment that breaks through the darkness.